All right, so welcome everybody to episode two of Endless Capacity. I'm really excited today to be joined by a close personal friend of mine, but also someone who's perfectly equipped and has the knowledge to talk about everything coronavirus from his perspective. And I wanted to bring him onto the show because him and I were talking and we just felt this content lended itself better for um, recording for everyone else. So I wanna introduce Dr. Brian Daniels, um, who obtained his med medical degree from Indiana University in 2010 with board certifications in family medicine and sports medicine by the American Board of Family Medicine. Dr. Daniels currently is a sports medicine physician at the Neymars Children's Hospital in Orlando, Florida, is the medical director of the United States Tennis Association National Campus, and is the director of player medical services for the United States Open Championships. He formerly was the medical director of Hofstra University and the team physician for the New York Islanders and the Long Island Nets. And with that, I want to introduce Brian. Brian, thank you for joining. Thank you for coming on to the show. I really appreciate it. Greg, thanks for having me. I really am happy to be here. Uh, I do want to point out that you know, I am not an infectious disease specialist, um, nor am I a public health professional. Um, but because I treat patients uh, of all ages all across the country due to my position, I would like to think that I have some background information uh, and can hopefully help your viewers uh, get a little more information about this virus that's been going around. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate you adding that. And, and even, you know, as I said a little bit in the open, um, this all started because you and I were just texting and I was asking you questions from, from new dad stuff to, to new mom questions. And then it obviously segued into Corona and just everything that we're ha that's happening right now. So I appreciate the, the, the caveat and the, and the, the statement at the beginning. Um, but with that, I think you'll find that the questions are, are topics that, you know, I myself are curious about. Uh, my wife, Tony, is very curious about and our friends and peers and colleagues. So, so hopefully your perspective gives that kind of common knowledge that everybody's kind of craving that we only get from, from the media or sharing things on Facebook, unfortunately. So with that, we'll, we'll dive in. And, and I actually felt the best place to start was like, let's just go back to the beginning. Um, you know, what is, you know, from, from your perspective, what is the coronavirus? Um, and, and if it helps, is there another way for us to think about it or, or to put it into perspective? Sure, and I'll dive a little bit deeper into this. So coronavirus is a, coronaviruses, I should say, are a group of viruses that um, have their proteins oriented in a particular way on the surface. So common cold is actually a coronavirus. The, what we're dealing with here, uh, COVID-19 is actually caused by SARS, CoV-2, so SARS um, uh, is, if you remember, was a disease that came about in 2003, came over from China, uh, and caused severe acute respiratory syndrome, which is what we're dealing with now. So this is, right. this virus COVID, or the, the disease COVID-19 is more related to that SARS disease back in 2003 than it is to the common cold. So uh, just, know that it is a coronavirus, but not all coronaviruses are the same. Got it, got it. And, you know, and that's something I've heard too, especially when we think about kind of the history. I think we've had a, uh, I don't know if the appropriate term is coronavirus or, or SARS uh, outbreak or, or, or issue, I think three times since the year 2000. I think, mm -hmm. I think you mentioned a few, a few of them just there. Um, but that was something even I was, I was unaware of. But in terms of, of this one, in terms of COVID-19, like when did you first become aware of the virus? Was it within the medical community? Was it exposed to, through, through seeing patients? Or was it honestly, like, was it through the media like everyone else where then you started paying more attention to it? 
So much like everyone else, it was through the media. We had been hearing reports out of China and we'd been hearing about this new disease in uh, Ube province, in Wuhan particularly. Uh, but it, did, it seemed a little distant at the time, so we took that information, but we didn't do much about it. Then we started hearing about issues on the cruise ships, issues with um, Americans, and then finally it started to seem as though it was going to move. So the reason why nobody really jumped on this is that you've, you look back at SARS back in 2003, it was serious, but it was short-lived. It turned out that it wasn't a very hardy virus, and so it kind of fizzled out. So we didn't have that much information at the time, and we didn't want to overreact, but wanted to at least be aware of everything. Mm. So from my personal perspective, uh, working with the United States Tennis Association, we actually started uh, developing a policy back in the middle of February as uh, cases in the U.S. started to grow. Now, these were mostly isolated to cruise ships, and unfortunately, one... Uh, long-term care facility in Washington. But the, the risk was there and we started noticing person-to-person -person transmission. So we knew this could become something serious and we certainly did not want to sweep it under the rug and hope that everything passed. Right, right. So in, in terms of um, symptoms, you know, as you know, so now, now you're aware of it, the community is aware of it, even like you said, um, the tennis association starts making policies, you know, then now once it's like actually out there and, and patients or I guess, you know, people are starting to get it, you know, from your perspective, or just from what you know, like, what are the most consistent symptoms that an individual would start feeling if they were to be exposed or, or I guess infected is the right way to say it. like, what are those consistent symptoms? Because you see, so many different things, um, depending on where you look. So I'm, I'm just curious that, you know, to hear from, from what, from what uh, your perspective. So if you think about the way that the virus actually atta attacks the body, it actually helps explain the symptoms. So the virus attacks uh, the cells that it show this particular protein. And as it attacks those cells, that's where we start developing symptoms. Anytime we have an infection, our body uh, raises the, our body temperature in order to help fight the infection. So fever is very common. Right. Uh, shortness of breath because this uh, ACE2 protein is, ex is uh, expressed on lung cells, uh, which show why we're going to have cough and shortness of breath. Because we're fighting such a bad virus and we may not be getting the oxygen that we want to because it's attacking our lung cells, that's where we start developing that fatigue and short uh, as well. So fatigue, shortness of breath, cough, and fever are really the most common symptoms. Mm. So on the flip side of the most common symptoms, let's, I, I wanted to ask you about the, like the lack of symptoms. Um, Cause I feel like that's also come up a lot is the, the lack of symptoms in some, and then the severity of what you just described in others. And in general, like, why is that? Is there, is there, a, is there an easy explanation as to why some people may not even know they have it or just carriers and why some people literally end up uh, unfortunately, intensive care and potentially death. There's not a great way to explain it. We're never really sure why some people are asymptomatic carriers, and why some people have uh, less severe symptoms and others have much more severe symptoms. We do know that because uh, the virus uses that ACE2 protein to attach to cells, those that may be um, 
it may have more of those proteins on their cell surface may be at higher risk. So this is one reason why kids may not be having as bad of symptoms or may be more asymptomatic carriers than adults and why those that uh, have chronic lung conditions may be more at risk. Number one, they may be uh, have more of that protein on the surface and two, they don't have as much of a reserve. So they are not going to be able to tolerate a certain number of cells being infected, certain parts of the lung being infected because mm. they can't handle any loss of lung tissue. Mm. And is that, in a way, is that part of the danger of the virus? You know, you said earlier, one of the reasons the first SARS kind of came and went in the earlier 2000s was because you either got really sick or you just didn't get it and it kind of just ran its course. Is, is and, and, and please correct me if I'm mistaking anything you said previously, but is that part of the danger of, of COVID-19 is carriers have no clue. So this thing is just spreading and people aren't even aware if they're sick or not. Is that, is that part of the heightened sense of, of, of danger here? That's exactly uh, correct. Because we don't know who's carrying it and who may be shedding virus, uh, or we may be shedding virus even before we show symptoms, we may be passing this along without knowing it. And that's how uh, we're getting such a significant transmission. In addition, the way that this virus is transmitted lends itself to infecting others more than, say, the flu. So the average person who has the flu uh, transmits it to 1.8 people per some mm. statistic I'd seen before. But when we have COVID-19, we're actually spreading it to more, 3.4 people. So it is more wow. transmissible. Wow. This is less transmissible than, say, measles. The average person with measles transmits it to eight to, or sorry, ten to twelve people, and this has more to do with the way that the virus particles are spread. And we'll actually go into that, or I'd like to talk about that a little bit later. And this is why we talk about uh, asymptomatic masking, mm. or what types of masks are important. And so, if you'd like me to talk about that a little bit more now, I'm more than happy to. You know what, let's let's dive in because I, I want to get your perspective. I want to go back a little bit to the to the symptoms of 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 you know old versus young, but I do think this is important. And, and just yesterday, the CDC announced that their recommendation is if you're out in public, you should be wearing a mask or 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 a mask made of cloth. Uh, so I, I did, and this is actually what I originally texted you about. I said, "Hey, do you agree with this or not?" So this is kind of the whole reason where we're doing this. So, so let's table the, my other question. Let's just go right into what, what you want to talk about, the, the masking and the tra transmissibility, because I think that's, that's important. I think in given the date, you know, where we are right now in early April, that's probably what's on most people's minds. Yeah. And, and the problem is that we are still gathering a lot more information. So let me at least try to summarize what we know or what we assume. Yeah. So when we're talking about uh, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, uh, they, it, it appears as though that those viruses are transmitted through big particles, respiratory particles, uh, versus something like the measles, which is, it can go on an aerosol where you, it can hang in the air for hours. This does not mm -hmm. seem to be the way that, uh, COVID-19 is transmitted. When we exhale, when we're breathing out, we get these big particles, which is why when you're lying next to your spouse or your dog comes up next to you and you get their hot breath. So those are all those particles that are coming out at you. Mm. This is, but they're heavy. So they mm. land about two meters or six, six and a half feet away 
but it, it takes a, a, a ballistic trajectory. So as we're going across, they're always going down. So if you are um, shorter than the person you're talking to, you're going to have more exposure. If you're taller, then you're going to have less exposure. Unless so if we're, if we're talking to down. each other. Right, yeah. Exactly. You're, 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 you're the Ivan Drago to my Rocky Balboa. So you're just, you're yeah. just dropping them right on. Yeah. <laughs> so this is where this six foot uh, social distancing came about because we're trying to keep people from breathing on each other. When it comes to masking, uh, we decided to suggest, when I say we, I mean the country, uh, decided to suggest allow, or having asymptomatic people wear masks for two reasons. One, we're going to try to catch a lot of those particles that we're breathing out inside the mask because they're big droplets and they can get caught. And two, there is some theoretical risk that you're going to be able to keep some of those particles that are being expelled out from entering your mouth. You do not, you do not catch this virus from uh, you know, cuts in the skin or touching things. You catch it in your respiratory tract. So we uh, are trying to reduce the exposure of uh, virus particles going in your mouth. In addition, uh, masking a lot of people also gives the visual reminder that we need to be engaged in these social distancing um, recommendations to try to stay far apart. So we are all trying to help each other and that's where these masks come in. When it comes to cloth masks, uh, we do know that the virus particles tend to live on artificial surfaces. So this is why a tight-knit cotton is what is recommended for a homemade mask. We do not know how effective these homemade masks are, but if you've ever breathed through your shirt and then put it next to your cheek, you know that it's a little bit wet. And so that's what we are trying to do. We're trying to reduce those virus particles, those big droplets from going through the mask. So if we're gonna make a homemade mask, tight-knit cotton is best. And just just for my understanding, Brian, is is tight knit cotton your your typical T-shirt? Is it is it something a little bit you know? Is it a sweater? Like what what is tight knit cotton? Is it your ski gear? If you're a skier and you have those snow masks at home, like should you be wearing breaking those out? Like what what's the best go to from a common you know household perspective? So T-shirt material is tight knit cotton. Uh, sweater is, tends to be a looser knit and is fuller and thicker. Uh, to help trap more air, which is how it keeps you warm. Those ski masks may not actually be a natural fiber and the virus particles may live on them. Now, oh. the other caveat I do want to point out is that once you breathe into them or somebody breathes on you, that is dirty. So you cannot touch that mask. You cannot touch anything um, on either side without washing it in order to clean it again. Mm. So if you say you are wearing a mask and you're going out and then you get home and you put it on a table and you put it back on and go back outside, you're not really doing very much. Mm. So people may need more than one mask in order to make this effective. Got it. Uh, this goes into another topic when I see a lot of people wearing gloves. So when we wear gloves, what we're doing is we're putting a barrier on our hands. But say you were to finger paint, for example. Mm -hmm and you're to put your, those hands in paint. And then everything you touch gets full of paint. So somehow you're, you're touching your phone, you're touching your clothes, and you're getting paint there. Now just imagine that at some point you're gonna take off your gloves and touch your mouth. 
or you're going to touch something and it's going to touch your mouth. You are not really limiting your exposure there. That paint is everywhere. Those mm -hmm. virus particles are everywhere. The best way to reduce that risk is to um, sanitize your hands. So sanitizing your hands between touching things, make sure you kill those virus particles and you're not putting them everywhere. You're actually using paint remover rather than uh, a paint barrier. Got it. So this is where I, I want to make sure that we're not spreading uh, virus particles everywhere and we're not giving ourselves a, a sense of security by wearing gloves but are actually trying to reduce the potential virus particles that are in our world. We do know that these viruses live on surfaces uh, for days, right? Hard surfaces, they tend to live for days. Things like cardboard can be 24 hours and we're not really sure on some of these softer surfaces. So let's, let's use cardboard as an example because I think you bring up a really good point and I'm even guilty of this. So right now, I'm Amazon priming everything. Things are coming to my doorstep. So I'm either... Right. So I think everyone's like, in fact, I don't even think prime is a thing anymore because the two day shipping is out the window. It's you're right. lucky if you're getting it within a week. Um, so I've done two things. I've done either. I let it sit outside and, you know, hey, if people want to steal my packages and that's on them. But like I've let it sit outside or I go out with gloves on and I open up the cardboard and then with a Clorox wipe, I wipe down whatever's inside it basically immediately. And then when I'm done doing that, I discard the box outside and then I take my gloves off or whatever. Is it, is that fine? Or are you saying just go out with your bare hands, open up the box with the, the knife, the scissor, whatever you're using, wipe down the object, but then just wash your hands or Purell your hands immediately and don't touch, obviously don't touch your face, but try not to touch anything else, the doorknob and whatever other barriers to get back to where you were. You bring up a lot of excellent points there. Uh, so I want to touch on a few of these topics. Yeah, yeah. So when we're touching surfaces, uh, it doesn't matter if we're touching them with our hands or with gloves, that's fine as long as we clean and sanitize. Um, and uh, the CDC is recommending, and there's a good amount of data to show that actually using soap and water and making sure we're doing it for 20 seconds, getting all the surfaces of our hands, even underneath our nails, can be more effective than using a hand sanitizer. So that's point one. Yep. Point two is uh, making sure you're cleaning your goods. So if you're using a Clorox wipe, that's great. Make sure you read the directions on the back though, because in order for it to sanitize takes 10 seconds, in order for it to disinfect takes four minutes. So let's take a break here and talk about the difference between sanitization and disinfection. So sanitization just means that you're trying to clear up 99.9% .9 of particles. So that can happen fairly quickly, and that's where the name sanitizer comes in. So an alcohol-based hand sanitizer is not gonna get rid of everything. It's gonna reduce that load that viral load, that contaminant load. Disinfection means it's getting rid of everything, but can take up to 10 minutes depending on your disinfectant. So what we're trying to do is sanitize because it does take a certain amount of viral load in order to cause infection. And this is one of the reasons why N95 masks are so important when we're in the hospital setting, especially when we need to put a tube down somebody's throat. And this, mm. is, not, and this is the same reason why we're suggesting people in the public not wear N95s. So getting back to the original topic at hand, if you're going to use Clorox wipes, make sure you're using them effectively in order to sanitize. Um, I do recommend wearing gloves to sanitize because these Clorox wipes can be very irritating to the skin. So totally unrelated to... Right. The, the viral load or viral particle or, or um, sanitization, but more related to just keeping yourself healthy. Mm. 
Got it. Um, and then just, I want to, I want to kind of put a pin in the mask piece and just make sure that I understand and everybody else understands. Let's say you, you're, you're wearing a, you have, you have actually access to a mask. You've got old painter masks, you have them from, from projects or, you know, home construction, whatever it is. Um, hopefully at this point, you're not going out and buying them. You're letting the medical professionals have at them and, and even Amazon to their credits, not even shipping Please. them anymore to you. Um, but let's say you do have them. Can you wash, or I guess going to the point around sanitization versus disinfecting, can you wash your mask with a wipe? Or what's the best way to get reuses out of your mask and not having to dispose them each time? Or is that is that not just that not possible? You have to pick and choose wisely when you use your, your mask. The answer is we don't always know. When it comes to a disposable mask, they were intended to be used once and disposed of. Whenever you are wearing, so say you're using ear loop mask uh, mm -hmm. that goes across here. When you're using it, you make sure you take it off from the ear loops and never touch the front part of the mask. Otherwise, you have then contaminated your hands and could potentially ingest some or breathe in some of those viral particles. Uh, trying to reuse masks is something novel for us. We've never had to talk about it before. In hospital settings, we're often reusing masks by putting them in an autoclave and sanitizing them. But even still, they have a limited lifespan. Uh, when it comes to home use, I don't have access to an autoclave personally, so I can't be sure that me wiping it or dousing it in um, sanitary sanitization or disinfecting solutions going to do anything to it because I don't know how deep that stuff has penetrated and Clorox wipes for instance are supposed to be used for hard surfaces and not for porous surfaces like masks mm. so if we're going to use reusable masks I would still suggest one-time use only if we're going to be using cloth masks just make sure you wash them uh, in between uses got it Got it. That, that's, that's super helpful. Cause I think even, even yesterday I was having this conversation with my mother around, she has, she has masks um, from, from being, you know, my, my grandmother's caretaker and, and, and my other grandmother's caretaker years ago. So she actually has them. She just, you know, so she's been making these little goodie bags for us as we need them. And we were just talking like, can you reuse them? Can I wipe them down? Can I wash them? So that's, that's super helpful and timely. I'm going to, I'm going to pass on that info, info as well. Um, so now I, I do want to actually go back a little bit now and talk a little bit about your your day to day because you know mostly you know as, as I understand it you mostly see children so 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 um, young adults under eighteen where mm -hmm. you work um, so I wanted to go back and talk a little bit about the impact on older adults versus children um, and then naturally I think you may segue into this but like is calling it an old person's virus a mistake like is that that's been thrown around a lot I think it's actually given this this false sense of security to um, people, I think, you know, under 40, or especially in that, that sweet, like 18 to 25 range, where they think this is like, you know, party time, I hate to say it, it makes me sound like an old guy, but I feel like that's, that's it. So I do want to talk about your perspective of, you know, having mostly uh, taking care of, you know, children under 18, and then a little bit about the difference between older adults and, and, and children. All right, so there's a number of topics here. Uh, first of all, it's not an old person disease. Children are just as likely to get this as older adults. But as we talked about a little bit earlier, right. older adults tend not to tolerate uh, any lung infection very well. Some of this may be related to the amount of that ACE2 protein expressed on the lung tissue. 
So these lung tissues are not getting as high of a viral load in kids versus adults. But that does not mean that they still are not asymptomatic carriers. We're talking now that 25% of people could be asymptomatic carriers, and those include a lot of kids. Right. So they're just as uh, they're at high, just as high of risk as an adult getting it. Mm-hmm. I did have a chat recently with the head of infectious disease at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan, and he was telling me that he's seeing a lot of people in their 30s and 40s coming in through the hospital with symptoms of COVID-19. Wow. They tend not to fare as poorly as those that are older and with chronic lung conditions, but that still does not mean that they're not getting affected. So you and I are just as high of risk of getting infection and showing symptoms. We may be able to tolerate a little bit better the loss of some lung tissue as it gets all um, full of fluid trying to fight off this pneumonia. Mm. So older individuals certainly are affected. It's certainly not an old person disease. And uh, we need to ensure that we as young people are not trying to sweep it under the rug and saying that we're not as high of risk because we could be carriers, we could be infecting those around us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you brought up a good point, you know, not only age, but also just the, the conditions, the pre-existing conditions an individual may have. So as I understand it, that, that this is a virus that really accelerates when there's other issues or compromises to the individual, um, heart disease, diabetes, obviously respiratory. Um, so A, is, is that accurate or does it go even further than that? And then B, how is something a little bit more minor like asthma count there? Like, how does that come into play? Because I think that goes back to the old versus young. Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know a lot of young people with heart disease or you know, um, you know, respiratory issues. But I know a ton with asthma. So, like, I'm curious of how of how uh, how that plays into it. So, if you think of asthma as inflammation of the lungs, and you think about how COVID nineteen acts, it inflames the lungs. It acts like asthma. So, those that may already have reactive airways are at higher risk. Mm. Uh, Any other lung condition decreases the ability of the body to compensate for infection in the lungs. And if we're talking about heart disease or cardiovascular disease, our body doesn't have the quite the same ability to compensate for infections. And so Mm. this is why heart disease, respiratory disease, diabetes, which decreases our ability to do a lot of things um, healthy anyway, are the biggest uh, comorbid conditions associated mm. with adverse outcomes when somebody comes down with COVID-19. Got it. And then this, this is actually an interesting point. In fact, my wife um, asked me to ask this because I thought this was actually interesting. So if it, if it attacks immune compromised people more severely, how have newborns survived or how are they essentially um, coping if if they're born essentially from again from like a common like a common terms like they're, de- they're they're they don't even have a developed immune system yet they're kind of born without one so how are newborns faring when it comes to immune comp- compromise being immune compromised versus an adult who has conditions so you actually bring up two points so when a woman is pregnant she herself is immune compromised uh and I, then yeah. of course you're right and a, a newborn is also or has a very immature immune system So newborns do have the benefit of not having adult lungs, and so they tend not to have the the expression of the protein that would lead to bad lung disease. So the only studies we have all come out out of China, 
And so far there's been no transmission even going from an infected mother to infant of uh, COVID-19. I am only aware of one case out of Connecticut where a young infant actually uh, passed away because of yeah. symptoms from COVID-19. I yeah. don't know, however, if that infant had any other comorbid conditions, if they had immature yeah. lungs or a heart condition or something. So it's hard for me to say exactly, but it does not seem to affect um, infants very much. Right. When it came to original SARS back in 2003, there was an increased risk in expected mothers. Uh, when it comes to COVID-19, we have seen perhaps uh, an increased risk of premature birth, but otherwise no significant uh, comorbid uh, or, or no significant risk to an unborn child. Mm. So I think we're relatively safe here, but the most important thing for an expectant mother or a newborn mother is to just distance themselves from anybody who could potentially infect them. Right, right. Um, no, that, that's super helpful. And it's very interesting that I never thought of it, that the newborn doesn't have the same development of lung capacity of an adult. Hence, you know, that could be playing a, playing a part there too. Um, so Brian, before we spoke, I went on Instagram and asked uh, people that follow me, which isn't a ton, but I did ask some people to submit questions that, that they had. Um, so I wanted to kind of shoot them out to you. Some of them we've already covered in terms of like at a macro level, like just the answers, but these could be quick. They could be yes, no's. You can go deep if you want, but there, I think these are the ones you kind of like hear most commonly through like family group chats, like when you guys are going back and forth, but um, I'll go through them. I know that the, the people watching and listening are probably waiting to see if their question's going to get asked. So I'll, I'll put them out there to you. Okay. Um, number one, um, can you catch the virus through skin contact? No. Uh, so this is a respiratory infection. Uh, skin can be a, what we call a fomite or a transmitter of the disease as we put our hands to our mouth, but touching something or even if you have an open wound does not seem to cause any infection. It needs to go into the respiratory system in order to infect our bodies. Got it. Um, number two, and, th and this is this is important because I think air, the, the the virus being airborne is something that we're talking more about now, just within our own communities and 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 friend circles. But how long does the does the virus remain in the air after an infected person coughs or sneezes? As far as the time, it really depends on how much air is expelled. So as we talked about, it has this ballistic trajectory. So as long mm -hmm. as it takes for that virus particle to travel and fall down. But essentially, we're talking a matter of seconds rather than minutes or hours, which is uh, similar, we talked about, to measles, where it's aerosolized. Mm. So this, this actually might be a different way of asking the same question. So, but I'll ask it anyway. If, if it is airborne and somebody walks by somebody else even six feet away, is that essentially how it's transmitted? Is they cough or sneeze and it's in that trajectory as you as you described, but is that essentially how it is transmitted? That's essentially how it's transmitted. So when we're talking about regular breathing, that's where that six feet comes in. If somebody coughs or sneezes, you have a lot more force and you have a lot more speed, so that virus particle could potentially go further. Mm. So maintaining at least six feet is actually beneficial in case somebody actually is infected and is coughing. So from a public health perspective, if you are feeling ill or are coughing or sneezing, even if you don't think you have the symptoms of COVID-19, you may still be an asymptomatic carrier and it's best to stay home and away from others. 
Got it. Got it. Um, this one I've heard a few times as well, but is, is, will it die in the summer due to heat? Does this thing die in the heat and will the, will the summer months bring that? So that's our hope, but we're really not sure. So I live in Florida and we have a lot of cases in Miami and it's been in the nineties here. The problem with summer and the problem with social distancing is that now we live in a world where we live, we have, climate controlled environments everywhere we go. When we go inside, it's high 60s or in the 70s. Mm -hmm. When we feel uncomfortable, we turn on the heat, we turn on the air conditioning, we live at a very comfortable temperature all the time. So most of these respiratory viruses do not uh, tolerate heat very well, but even in tropical countries, we are seeing instances of the virus. Mm -hmm. So I can't say for certain, the reason why we're, hopefully talking about it dying out over the summers that we have done enough from a public health perspective in order to reduce transmission and keeping this virus from spreading from person to person. Got it. Yep. And then um, I've heard this one as well. And and someone asked me uh, to ask you, will it be back in the fall? Like the news is saying, is this going to creep its head around again? Again, we don't know. So, We are having, uh, there is an incidence of transmission even in places like Australia, which is obviously opposite seasons from us. Mm. Their number of cases are expected to go up as they go indoors through their winter months. Uh, And it may pop up later. There's a possibility that we could actually even get a spike over the summer if as uh, the, the trajectory of the virus is actually trending down, we then go out and we start socializing because we've missed it so much, mm-hmm. we could start transmitting that virus between person to person. So our hope is that we're able to keep this down, but the months ahead will actually give us a lot more information on how this virus is going to uh, respond. Got it. Um, so super helpful. I will um, obviously ask people if they have more questions. So if we ever do a follow up, or I can shoot them to you, we can we can ask more. But that that was great. Um, I want to flip now to more of the sports specific um, aspect of of your day to day. So so as a sports medicine physician, and, and you currently overseeing the USTA national campus, um, you know what is the real driver in shutting down athletics? Is it the safety of the athletes? Is it limiting travel? Or is it just really like an easy way to limit social gatherings? Um, so, and, you know, and so I'll, I'll pause there and just see kind of like your perspective from, from, uh, from maybe it's just in the tennis world, but also just macro, like all of sports and, and um, competition. So there's three things we have to uh, discuss here. Number one is when you're playing sports, how close are you to somebody else? If we take something like tennis and you're playing singles, probably not that close. But mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. we talked about, there is uh, many ways for the virus to transmit from one person to the next. So we've actually had a lot of discussions on whether or not uh, a tennis ball can carry the virus. And so that tennis ball goes from person to person. So we may be uh, transmitting the virus, touching the tennis ball, touching the net, touching the net post, touching the gate, uh, being close to each other when we take a break on benches. So keeping that distance is very important when it comes to Obviously, sports like basketball or football were in very close proximity. Uh, there has been a lot of talk about playing games without fans, mm-hmm. but we're still having players there. We still have all of the event staff that 
need to be there in close proximity to ensure that an event goes on. And so I do want to commend the U.S. Tennis Association for putting out a statement uh, two days ago or on Friday uh, that they don't even recommend recreational tennis because we're trying oh. to reduce that spread. Yeah. I do worry about uh, companies like the WWE who decided to hold WrestleMania this weekend mm -hmm. because there's still a lot of staff that have to go there to make this go on. We are not really practicing social distancing, even though there were no fans there. So right. it's not just the athletes that are worried about, it's the general public. Mm -hmm. Um, and is there any other aspect that, that the general public doesn't think about when they hear that their sports were taken away? You know, uh, you brought up a good point about the empty arena aspect of it. The UFC pulled off an empty arena show last month in Brazil, right before this really started this peaking. The WWE, as you mentioned, is holding WrestleMania this weekend. I believe it was pre-taped, but still only a week ago. So still not really practicing social distancing. But is there another aspect when the public here is like, oh, we may not get spring college football or the NFL is in jeopardy, or maybe the US Open doesn't come on time in August this year, August, September. Um, is there other other aspects or is it is it really what you just outlined from a, from a competition and every aspect of who's there and who touches what? We're all sacrificing here. So while I would love to be able to watch sports and not watch marble racing on ESPN, um, <laughs> I know that it's in the best interests of the public. And I'm not just talking about our athletes here. I'm talking about you and me mm. who might be fans, we want to get out there and enjoy it, but we also know that we have to do what's best in order to save our families, our parents, mm -hmm. our neighbors. These are who are gonna be affected by uh, sporting events, not yeah. just the athletes. Right, and, and you're thinking about athletes, it makes me think of just in general, health and fitness and, and well-being. Is, is health and fitness another way to just fight this virus? And, and what else could people be doing other than distance that could help them either um, fight off the virus, not catch the virus, or just be in a better place, if, God forbid, if they were to get it? And, and I thought health and fitness, thinking about athletes, like if you're just taking care of yourself, are you less apt? But is, is that accurate? And then are there other things people can be doing other than the distancing? So there's no evidence that exercising regularly is going to help prevent or fight this virus. But we do know the mental benefits of maintaining one's fitness and going out and exercising. And so I still want to encourage the public to go out and um, be active, try to clear their head, get out of their houses in a socially distant way right. uh, in order to not feel so alone, not feel so confined, and to make sure that when we come out of this, we are in a good place. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I was thinking health and fitness from a physical standpoint, but you're right, the mental health and the stress management anxiety of it is, is massive and, and how, to ma how to manage that. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about food shopping, but you covered that earlier in terms of your thoughts on, on gloves and wiping things down. But I also wanted to also ask you about takeout food. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I really wish I could be supporting my local restaurants and, 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 and services more. But I've just been admittingly, I'm just cautious to takeout. Um, I don't know who's preparing the food. I don't know if the packaging it's going in is clean. Um, I don't know what to do once it gets to my house. You know, I know if people doing curbside or doorstep drop off. But what do I do once it's there? Like, do I wipe everything down? Do I take, you know, do I wear gloves, not wear gloves? So do you have any advice of, of how you've either dealt with takeout or how people should be dealing with, with takeout food? 
Well, that's a great question. When it comes to takeout, it's actually very similar to what you've been doing with groceries. So the packaging that it comes in has the potential to be contaminated. You can certainly wear gloves and wipe that down, but hot food would kill a virus. Mm. And so if you're ordering a pizza or a burger and it's being delivered to your door and has been cooked and is warm, there's very light, little likelihood that there's any virus living on it. I don't think I would feel that comfortable ordering a salad, which inherently is not cooked and has run the risk of infections. Right. Right. Uh, but I don't really feel that hesitant to avoid all takeout together. And I'm happy to support my local businesses in a socially acceptable way. Got it. Socially cool. conscious way, I should say. Yep. So now flipping, flipping to moms and, and, and parents now, um, if, if you, if you have a, a newborn, let's say you, you just had a baby and, and you're actually positive on the mother. Can you breastfeed? Absolutely. There's been no evidence that there's any viral shedding inside breast milk. So okay. if you are positive, we've talked about that there's been very little, if any, transmission from uh, mother to daughter or mother to child. Mm -hmm. But breastfeeding should not be an issue. Uh, this is a respiratory thing. It's not in our blood inherently. And so right. it does not come out in breast milk. Got it. And then this one, this one's more of, I think, the nightmare of like, if your, if your kids were to get sick, but then what actually happens? So, um, and I don't know if this is different from state to state or hospital to hospital, but, but if your kids were to get sick, um, are they staying in the hospital or are they quarantining at home? And if they do have to go to the hospital, are they going by themselves? Like, are your parents, like, is a parent able to accompany a child or is it like, hey, your kid's going in and you're going to have to wait a little bit until they get through this? Well, every hospital has their own policy, of course. Uh, when kids get sick, much like adults, if you are able to uh, isolate yourself at home and deal with the infection at home, that's very reasonable. It's only mm -hmm. when you start developing worsening symptoms or you're starting to get increased shortness of breath or uh, difficulty maintaining your hydration status or, or something similar that you need to go to the hospital. But most hospitals are allowing one parent to accompany a child, or in some cases having two parents be able to be there so they can trade off, but only one at a time. Got it. Got it. No, very helpful. And, and it actually eases, you know, some thoughts as well. I, I, I know my house and I'm sure you've thought of it with, with, with your son and other parents that are watching. So, all right. So we're almost at the end here. So I want to start Kind of, kind of bringing it home a little bit. Um, you know, Brian, I wanted to ask you both as a doctor and as a husband and father, why is it so important to just stay home right now? Like, and answer it. If, it may be the same answer, but you can also answer it from from wearing both hats if, if you can. The answer is very simple. It's this is not a a question of me. This is a question of us. What I'm staying home. Uh, to protect everybody else. And everybody should be staying home to protect themselves from, or protect everybody else from them. So we have to think about it from a public perspective. If we are going out and doing what we want to do, we're going to be interacting, we're going to be exposing other people, and we're going to make this last a lot longer than it needs to. This is a terrible virus and it's causing terrible consequences. Mm -hmm. And we need to make sure that we're giving of ourselves for the greater good. Yep. 
so so Brian, how, how does this play out? So how, how do we get past this or, or how does it get resolved? What, what are your thoughts there? We're going to be entering some very troubling times over the next few weeks for a couple of reasons. One, uh, we're going to be start hitting our peak incidents. Now, just remember that it's between five and 14 days after catching the virus that you actually become symptomatic. And those symptoms can last for a couple of weeks afterward. So it is likely that over this last week and these next couple of weeks is when most people are actually going to be shedding virus and we're going to be starting to get a lot of um, people becoming ill. So it's very crucial that over these next few weeks, we are staying at home and doing that appropriate social distancing. If we don't, then this is going to last a lot longer. The expectation is that only about 5% of people in the country are actually going to be exposed to the virus during this uh, epidemic, pandemic. Mm -hmm. And afterward, we still have 95% who have not caught it. We still are not sure how long immunity lasts after catching the virus. You know, how many colds have you had in your life? Right. Countless. Countless. And so that's a yeah. coronavirus. So we don't know how this is going to play out. How long does this immunity last? So even those that may have uh, caught the virus, either been asymptomatic or been symptomatic and recovered, may catch it again and may not have as good of outcomes. Right. So the only right. way to prevent it is prevent transmission is to stay at home, to distance yourselves, to do the appropriate uh, uh, sanitizing and disinfecting techniques. Yep. Yeah. Um, that's, that's super helpful. And unfortunately, you know, I don't know if the viewers were expecting a secret sauce answer there, but it sounds like the way to do this is to, you know, stay at home, stay with your families, isolate yourself. And, and that's the best thing to do to get there quicker. Um, you know, so, but you're right. And I know every state is different. And even before we started recording, I was, I was just telling you that, the reports seem to be that this coming week, maybe two weeks, is going to be the peak in New York. And it's mm -hmm. scary to think it's going to get much worse than it's already been because the daily reports are, are terrible. And other states, I feel terrible, other states are weeks behind. So I, I look at other states that are, that are just coming into it. And New York has been crazy. And, and uh, you know, obviously, New York dominates the media a lot. But um, to think that our peak is not even here yet, and then other peaks in other states are weeks away. It's, it's just, it's scary. It's, it's really, it's really frightening for anyone, whether you're, you're single, you're, you're married, you have a parent, you're, you're a parent or you're, you're a caretaker, you know, grandparents or, or parents or whatever it is. So, um, but yeah, I think that's the best way to resolve it. So, so Brian, now I want to get to a little bit more about you. So on endless capacity, I, I try my best to explore different aspects of somebody's life and their goals and, and just their passions in general. Um, so you're someone ironically that a year ago we could have done this conversation in, in person. Uh, you, you and I live close to each other. We're, we're, we're good friends. Um, but you decided uh, to not only to take a dream job uh, that relocated yourself and your wife, but you did it with only weeks being away from your wife delivering your first baby. Um, and oh, by the way, it wasn't just a simple relocation. It was New York to Florida. So, <laughs> and you did this all in, I mean, literally, I think you told us you were moving and you were pregnant maybe like like weeks from each other and, and we were devastated, but it, it seems to work out again, dream job uh, and I get it. But I'm, I'm curious not about the job and the move. I'm more curious about like what adjustments, um, not only as a professional, you know, a doctor in your profession, 
but also husband and father did you did you have to make and and what did you really learn about yourself along the way in order to make such a rapid change uh so you know such a big change so quickly i should say it was a very difficult decision i really loved my job i loved the people i worked with i loved uh the friends and family i had in new york so coming to this decision certainly was not easy. When I looked back at my life in New York, uh, I was working uh, my regular nine to five office job. Plus I had a lot of off or after hours event coverage, which I love, but it was not conducive to being around for my family. So we made this decision pretty soon after we found out that we were pregnant um, because I wanted to be home more and mm -hmm. I wanted to be the, the, the father that my child could look up to. I did not want to be the distant father who helped provide for the family but did not do very much else. Right, right. No, I think that is, and it's kind of the, perspective or thesis, I don't know how to put it, honestly, I still struggle to find words for it. But that to me is the, I don't even, I don't even consider it balance. I consider it like the choices we make to, to increase our capacity and threshold at work, but do it in a way that still allows us to thrive and become better husbands and fathers and take care of our homes. Mm -hmm. um, that, that combination is, is the, I think that's the sweet spot. And that's something that I struggle with daily. Um, I'm sure you're, you're struggling with as well. And, and there's no, sometimes you go forward, sometimes you go back, but that to me is the, the biggest thing is how do we, how do we let our lives kind of work together to increase everything as opposed to sacrifice one aspect of it to, to get ahead on the other aspect of the other side. Cause that happens. That's happened to me at different points in my career and, and life itself. So it's interesting to hear how you've basically made this decision when you knew you were taking on so much more responsibility. You said, you know, I'm not gonna, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's almost like, well, if we're going to take on responsibility here with a, with a, with a baby, I might as well go all in and take on all the responsibility and increase, <laughs> <laughs> increase the job. And then we'll, we'll go do it somewhere else as well. Um, so, and just for everyone to know, um, this all didn't happen that long ago. This is only about a year ago when, when you made this move and, and your, your uh, beautiful son is turning one tomorrow. So happy birthday. Mm -hmm. Uh, very exciting. I, I once heard, I don't even know if I agree with it or not, but I do think it's funny. I once heard that the first birdays are really for the parents because like you made it, you got a year under your belt. So um, <laughs> you guys, hopefully you you and your wife celebrate tomorrow as much as uh, you guys, as much as you do for, for your son um, there. Thank you. Cool. And, and so Brian, so how, um, if you want people to find you, how, how do people find you? Are, are you on on social or do you have a, an email that's friendly to email? Uh, you know, what's the best way to find you? So I try not to be on social media because of my position. I really like to yep. be in the background and make policy. So it is yep. rather difficult to find me on social media. Uh, if, if it's okay with you, if somebody wanted to find me and they had questions through you, I'm happy to answer them uh, with you as my, uh, that is boxing. that is that is perfectly acceptable. So anybody, if you have questions for Brian, follow me or reach out to me either a private message, text me if you have my number, um, or just follow me on social. You can also leave comments in the video, uh, and we can send questions back and forth and make sure that they get answered for you. Um, Brian, I can't thank you enough. This has been hugely informative for not only myself, but I'm sure everybody that that's watched. So I really appreciate your time. Please get back to your family, and uh, of course, stay safe. Thank you for all the the tips and advice. Thanks for having me. This was great.
Cool. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye.